good <laughs> we're both surviving that's all you need to uh, know <laughs> better this week than i was the last time i was here so i just feel like life has gotten like so insane i'm like what happened well, you're, what did we do i haven't done anything i was just having an emotional month <laughs> well you were you didn't but you just had stuff happen all around you yeah that's true care about, so. i'm doing okay now yeah, that's good i'm doing I'm good glad. i'm glad you're here i got my grounding bracelet yeah i got my grounding <laughs> piercing okay <laughs> that's what we're calling it if anyone asks um well before we get into the episode you are listening to difficult damsels oh yeah <laughs> do that first off that's that's fair i'm cat i'm rachel um this is a podcast about badass women from history um so can i just like do like an honorable mention for your aunt because she is like our new hype person and it makes yeah me so absolutely happy. <laughs> hi madison hi <laughs> Thank you for, um, like... She keeps posting our episodes on her Facebook and just... She's on the words. really <laughs> exciting ones, too, so oh, I'm, I'm I'm hoping she enjoys them. I love she, I, I mean, I think she is. Yeah. <laughs> it well, like she is. <laughs> it's funny because um, the episode she's posting, she's, like, reviewing our the Agrippina and Cleopatra episodes, yeah. and, like, this episode feels like an Agrippina episode to me, as yes. we're going to find out... Um, God, is your finger okay? Yes. Did you, I really hope everyone heard that crack, because otherwise <laughs> that's going to get weird fast. <laughs> yes, I cracked my fingers. Um, But Kat is holding her Christmas present. Can I shake it? Oh my God. Don't <laughs> As shake I'm it. shaking it. I don't shake it. Okay, then it's too late. It's bad juju. My life is bad juju, well, so it's fine. We'll just that, add it to the mix. But that, your present doesn't have anything to do with that. Anyway, <laughs> I it's funny I because- I rub it awkwardly. You know what? It's your present. You do what you want to do. So I got yours was the first present I ordered through Etsy. Yes, and it took the longest to arrive. Um, because it it's wait, didn't you order that from Etsy? Yeah, but this I ordered. It, I think it's from Latvia. So it, oh yeah, yeah, it's yeah, international. So Kat is going to open her Christmas I'm present. Going to open it. I'm really happy that you kind of opened it, so I didn't have to worry about today. Oh, I wanted to make sure that uh, <clears throat> Jasmine's gonna help. I wanted to make sure that it was what it was supposed to be. That's so, fair. yeah. Hi. Jasmine says, I will help you open your present. <laughs> you can give all the good juju to it. Okay. So, <laughs> there's a Mystical Universe guidebook because, we, well, I know what she got me, but you don't yet. What is this? Ritual candles. Ooh, that's fun. Yeah, you're supposed to, you want to, like, cleanse your tarot cards yes. periodically. It's in a pretty blue velvet bag. That I, I, I really can't wait to see them. They look charm. really pretty. Stuff. <laughs> My cat found the box. That's all she's concerned oh, about. They do look very glossy. Hell yeah. Yes. Cool. Yes. Hell yeah. Ooh. Oh my gosh. Those are They're beautiful. So pretty. I like that one. Ooh. I like this one. Get to the it's major wrong. arcana. I want to see what, what. Okay, you say that like I should know. That's pretty. So that's gonna be like your your empress, your moon, your strength <clears> card. <throat> well, I'm on pentacles. I'm not. <laughs> You're almost there. Pentacles <laughs> are the last seat. Ooh. Oh, those are. 
I love it. The high priestess. High priestess. Hey, Ooh, wow, that's so pretty. That is pretty. I don't want to touch them because you're they're your cards. Don't touch them. The lover's card. Oh my god. Those are gorgeous. Oh, I love those greens. These are beautiful. Thanks, Mom. You're welcome. Yeah, Enjoy. Get into this. I'm so excited. So I recommended to Kat with her tarot cards that she <laughs> pull a card a day for a year just to get to know the deck. Yeah. And then um, you can look up like uh, tarot spreads. Okay. to pull so like the the one card a day pull helps mm-hmm. you it's usually the idea is you pull a card and it, whatever the theme of that card is is what you keep in mind for the day um, but you can also say like what's something I should keep in mind for my emotional well-being for the day yeah. or to ground me for the day etc cetera, etc cetera. as cats are grounded <laughs> <laughs> you can also do a three card pull which is another standard one it's just what should I think about today? What am I feeling today? And what's something to keep in mind? Huh. So, okay. but you can you can look that up online. Yes, I can. So yeah, thanks, mom. Enjoy. She bought me my Welcome. first tarot tarot card deck. I'm very I'm excited. I'm excited too. Okay. They they came out. I'm that's how they that's looked on the Etsy thing. So I'm I'm glad they came out. Hell yeah. You know, I really haven't had a bad experience with Etsy yet. Like, I usually read I the reviews you, and I got you that one necklace and it like <clears> broke. Oh yeah. That's the That's only true. one, but most of the yeah. stuff has been pretty good. Yeah. So, did you just spill water everywhere? How long have you been drinking water? This is my first sip. Oh, no. <laughs> it's a great start. It's just water, guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, thank you for my Christmas present. You're I welcome. Yay. Like, and then one day you'll do a reading for me. And I'm yes. Excited. It might be a while. <laughs> That's fine. Because all I do is work now. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do those, those pulls, those daily pulls. Yeah, and you'll have to let me know just um, if the same card keeps popping up no, for you. Fun. That's always fun. You're like, what are you trying to tell me? It's going to be the chill the fuck out card. <laughs> oh, yeah, those yeah. exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, usually, that's usually you'll pull the hermit and it'll be like, go back into yourself, yeah. meditate, yeah. think, <laughs> reset, reassess everything. But yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah. before we get into this episode, I'm going to apologize twice um the first one is at the same time oh okay (laughs) nobody brought this up to me this is my own thing but um (laughs) you guys Rachel's about to be a hardcore burger right now let's go (laughs) I struggle with French and I hope you guys are amused but everyone who isn't French struggles with French Rachel (laughs) it's it I feel like it's gonna come out again in this episode. So like I'm doing my best, but we're just gonna go with it. And then the second one is again. That's why you're apologizing? Because you don't know French? Yeah. Because <laughs> I know it sounds oh bad. <laughs> the second um apology is just the names. Um, a lot of duplicates. So there are some instances, like I'll say what the name is, but then because that name exists in multiple people, oh fuck, I didn't bring I have the picture still. Are okay. you talking about that adorable chart you made? Yeah, me? <laughs> I, oh man, I'm so annoyed with myself because I added two little figures to it, but I'll just tell you who they were. But you guys, wait, let's, let's, let's start that conversation real quick. Rachel sends me this amazing, like hand drawn and God bless you. You are not an artist. No, I am not an artist. <laughs> but she sends me this like, hand drawn, like stick figure, but she tried really hard to make them a little better than stick <laughs> Oh my god. Okay, I forget our text 
text message strands get a little aggressive. We need to just keep it on that because I'm gonna use it. In oh a my second. god! Oh my god! They have hats, and then there's the Pope. Well, it's what a, is this address? It's a <laughs> yeah. So, um, oh like, there's multiple Henrys, and one of them is a bourbon, and the other is one of Catherine's children. So, like, when we get there, I'm going to call them by their titles. Let's all be friends. <laughs> anyway. I love your drawings so much. And the swords. The swords. The swords. Oh, they look like wooden swords. and They, they all have happy. little commentaries. They do. This um, is beautiful. I will post this with your permission. Yeah, absolutely. I was going <laughs> to post it, too. Keep that picture up because I'm going to use it in a second. I'm going to save it as a picture. Oh my gosh, Izzy. (laughs) My cats are trying to sabotage the episode by walking on the computer. Great, great. Anyway, so this is another long episode. Um, I'm going to strap in. Hop right into, yeah. (laughs) Strap right (laughs) in. Strap into whatever you want to strap into. (laughs) So this is episode, I believe it's 32, Catherine de Medici, part three. And guys, I don't, good news, I don't have to give up Finnin because <laughs> no. it is going to be four parts, like I said. Wow, spoiler alert. <laughs> I wanted to just win for a second, just one second. There was no way, like this episode could have been split in two and I just had to keep cutting stuff. Yes. But when we last left off, Catherine de' Medici's young son, King Francis II, died of an earache. A little more than that, but. Oh my God. <laughs> ultimately, that's what it was. He died of an earache. So now nine-year-old Charles Maximilian is next in line to the throne and five years away from his majority. So he is officially Charles IX of France. Okay. Catherine de' Medici has finally played her cards after decades of passivity and observation and emerged as the regent for her son. At the age of 41, she has been named the governor of France and the de facto ruler of the country. Her yeah, reign all her aces officially <laughs> begins now. One other little mm-hmm. disclaimer I'm going to give is by the end of this episode, I would say this is going to be a heavy hitter uh-oh. episode. Okay. Yeah. Yes. It's an uh-oh episode. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's scary. Um, I also I... love that. Nature. I- I'm looking at the picture, but I also love that. Um, um, I say that a lot. I also love that. Uh, they name their kids. Wasn't one of their enemies Charles? Yeah. I mean, I understand. They only have five, they only names, have to five from, names to choose So why from. would you choose the name of your enemy? I guess you have nine kids. So there's... Kids. She had ten. Just she a, gave birth to ten, but she only has eight, right? Because the twins Yeah, died. something. Yeah. Seven. Okay. Oh, so she had nine in the twins. Also, died. one of her younger children is named Francis. Why not? So Francis died. Kids the same and name? then she renamed one of... Yes. That's not great. No, it's oh not. Oh my god. I can't even get mad at Game of Thrones now for doing that. I love how I get all mad about this, but then people come up with new names. I'm like, the fuck is that? Well, so, I mean, he's Charles the Ninth, so Charles was one of the, like, popular names for kings, too. Yeah. So. yeah. Actually, you can hang on to that. I'm not going to need it just yet. Oh, but, yeah. anyway, so, there are a couple of loose ends we need to tie up before continuing our story and getting to the heart of the French Wars of Religion that will dominate this episode. So for one, there is a second queen dowager running around now, Mary Stuart. Yeah. So Mary, queen of Scots, she, she lingers around France for a little bit following the death of Francis um, because her uncles are already scheming to find her a new husband. Jesus. Property. <laughs> so Catherine isn't keen to keep Mary around at this point, and she actively intervenes anytime a new husband is presented that might bolster the Guise position in France. Oh, I was like, why does she want to... Well, so a couple of the um, 
bachelors put forth for Mary had been King Philip II's son, Don Carlos, who is like certifiably insane. He actually gets Ooh. locked up at one point. Oh, fun. So she dodges a bullet there. And then um, <laughs> Mary's like, like one of the princes from the Netherlands. Oh. Um, both of them Catholic matches, both that are too close to France for Catherine's liking. So she like very much intervenes and makes sure it You're doesn't like, happen. No, it's not going to happen, but thanks for the offer. But Mary is proving to be a financial burden on the French crown because her status as a dowager queen now entitles her to considerable to a considerable pension. Oh. Um, and France is broke. <laughs> so, oh, no. uh, is that because um, was it Henry who went to like all these wars for no reason? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then the Guises never really fixed the problem. Yeah. Because um, they just wanted wealth for themselves. <laughs> yeah. In the end, Mary makes the decision to return to Scotland where her throne sat vacant for her. Um, and this is where she's going to exit our story. So if you want to find out what happens to her, you'll have to come back at a stand later by, date. Stand by. With all that settled, Catherine was able to turn her attention to the upcoming coronation of her nine-year-old son, King Charles IX. Her nine-year-old son. Unlike previous coronations, the sad state of the crown's treasury meant oh, that the ceremony no. was an oh. uncharacteristically modest affair. Oh. Okay, my cats are fucking around now. <laughs> so you don't... You don't get this huge procession of knights and chevaliers and like beautiful gowns. Like it's it's very much a like they're like sit here, here's your crown, good job. <laughs> and on top he's of nine, that, he doesn't give a shit. <laughs> well, so when the crown is put on his head, it is so heavy that he like cries That's underneath so the weight sad. of it. People have to hold it Why up. Why is the crown so heavy? Like not metaphorically, but like literally. Um, it's so heavy that even when it was placed on Catherine's head. That you always have to have at least two people holding it. Yeah, why? I don't know. Because the they're down and get a lighter crown without so many jewels. How about you pluck some of them jewels off and sell them to pay for a good, whatever this is called, for? Wow, my brain just for your back. coronation, yeah. like put some money back in the treasury. Yeah, yeah. What a concept. Like, Look, we don't need this itty bitty ruby that costs millions of dollars. Let's just get rid of it and sell it, and he can have a nice, beautiful coronation. They won't miss the ruby. Sorry, <laughs> she threw your cat. She's fine. That's what I do. Um. The other thing that's going on is even though Catherine is the regent now, there's still a lot of animosity between the Bourbons and the Guises. And the Guises aren't happy with Catherine because they're being she's being too moderate for their liking. They've left court at this point, um, but they do show up to the coronation like grudgingly. <laughs> and um, while there, they openly mock Catherine's policy of religious tolerance as double dipping her toe in the pot. Wow. And they no longer bother to mask their hostility towards her. I'm sorry. You're mad because a woman is saying, hey, practice whatever the fuck you want. And we won't, we're not going to go around and like murder you for no reason other than you believe something different. That's why they're mad. Yeah, because <laughs> the Protestants are heretical devils. Yeah. And she's yeah, allowing them to coexist. Yeah. It's stupid. So. Can you imagine all the wars that would have been not fought? Well, this whole episode. I know. Anyway. <laughs> So, when the Cardinal Lorraine, you'll remember this is Charles of Guise, presented the crown to King Charles. Oh no, why are you giggling? He, it's just because Charles of the Guise. The really fucking heavy crown that had to have two people hold it? Yeah. She pointedly says out loud to the king and everyone else in attendance who hear him, anyone who advised the king to change his religion would at the same time tear the crown from his head. Wow. Mm -hmm. All right, calm down. Oh my gosh. 
aptly timed. Jasmine does not agree with that statement at all. <laughs> so at the start of her reign, Catherine had two dire issues that required immediate attention. The first was the state of the treasury, and the second was the volatile religious situation in her country. I need the, the picture. The first was the state of the treasury, and second. Yes. <laughs> what are you looking at this? I need the picture, because I'm going to introduce our players for this episode. So, oh, okay. <laughs> put this map online. <laughs> so, we have the Catholic faction on one side. We have Francois de Guise, who is the Duke of Guise. I'll call him the Duke of Guise. Mm-hmm. Um, he is, again, the military leader of the Catholic faction. We have Charles de Guise. Wait, hold on. Go back to that statement. The military leader of the Catholic faction. Yeah. They'll, they'll be known as the royalist faction. I know. It's just the military leader of the Catholic mm-hmm. faction. Yes. That's great. We have his brother, Charles de Guise, the Cardinal of Lorraine. We have Anne de Montmorency. Mm. He's still alive. I remember him. He is also fervently Catholic, so they were once enemies. They're going to be besties now going forward yep (laughs) kind of in the center of the road down the middle is catherine de medici the neutral territory kind of no man's land neutral but (laughs) still catholic yeah okay um her her son (laughs) her son charles because he's nine and he can't make a decision for himself he'll be older by the end of this episode um (laughs) a little bit about charles uh also perpetually sick gets put under a lot of pressure with everything that's about to go down is prone to rage attacks oh that's okay yep that's not great we also have um so some new players michelle or michelle de le hospital you can't say michelle like that because i just think of a dodgeball and it gets weird i'm gonna call him de le hospital he is Catherine's number one advisor okay he's actually like a lawman. So as she's coming up with these ideas to bring her country together, he's going to be the one that um, puts them into effect. Okay. And he's also on her side as far as like being a champion for tolerance and moderation goes. Okay. So he's her ally. So not a, not a bad guy. No. Not yet anyway. I feel like he's not a bad guy. Okay. Um. Then we have the Protestant factions. So we already know Antoine de Bourbon. King of Navarre. Um, very wishy-washy as we are about to find out because he's gonna flop sides. Great. We have Louis de Conde, so I'm gonna call him Conde. He is one of the leaders of the Huguenot movement, which is the Protestant mm-hmm. movement. Another new player, Gaspard de Coligny. Gaspard. He fights too. So Gas <laughs> Gaspard de Coligny is the Francois de Guise of the Protestant faction. He is the military leader. Okay. He is formidable. He knows what he's doing okay. and he will stop at nothing to get his way. We have Jean de Albert, the queen of Navarre. Oh, she is the one that I'm adding to the list. Yes. <laughs> so you can kind of think of Jean. It's Jean de Albret. Actually, we'll call her Jean, the queen of Navarre. Jean, the queen. Jean, the queen. <laughs> She's kind of the Catherine de Medici of the Protestant faction, um, only in the sense of she's the political and spiritual leader of that movement. She hates... The, the thing the Protestants don't like about the Catholics, aside from the do- dogmatic issues we'll get into, yeah, is... The corruption. <laughs> the corruption and the ritualistic fluff. Yeah, me too. So 
No, you you like the cathedrals. That's you true. like the incense. You like the ritual aspect. Protestants, especially in this time period, their churches were simple. They weren't gaudy. They didn't wear a lot of makeup. They wore simple clothing. They were, you know, bringing the humbleness of God into their lives. Yeah. And uh, her thing is like, yeah, the French court is corrupt because everyone dances and wears makeup and they're singing and yeah, (laughs) singing and there's dancing. (laughs) And then we have um, Antoine de Bourbon and Jean's younger son, Henry of Navarre. Okay. Those are our players. Yeah, I did. So I will call him Henry of Navarre. Just know he's another bourbon. Okay. Um, And then, yeah, Catherine has a son. Also named Henry. He's mm. after Charles. <laughs> He's the Duke of Anjou. That's we'll talk about him a little okay. later. Um, so when you get confused later, just stop me and ask me. <laughs> okay. So like in five minutes. <laughs> yes. So as we already mentioned, decades with Imperial Spain have completely dried up the crown's treasury and the Guise brothers were unsuccessful in fixing it during their short tenure in control of the country. And now it's Catherine's problem to deal with. As Great. for the religious issue... At the start of her reign, it was Catherine's policy to allow reformers to practice their religion so long as they did it in silence. La Hapital cautioned that it was dangerous to publicly acknowledge the validity of a new religion. She said, lest there be as many religions as there are families and heads of men. The Catholic faith would still be openly acknowledged as the official faith of France. So let's be very clear before going forward. Catherine was not sympathetic to the Protestant cause. She did not care what they believed, nor did she have any interest in understanding it. She was primarily concerned with maintaining order and preventing the country from breaking out into a religious motivated war. She had no intention of ever publicly acknowledging the Protestant religion as being valid or even legally sanctioning it. Yeah, but the the fact that she took a step in the right direction is terrifying for the people who want to keep that divide Mm -hmm. firmly in place. So the Huguenot faction was free to worship as they pleased so long as they did so quietly and they did not talk to anyone about it. She's operating from a belief that she just has to get the leaders of the various political factions to play nice with each other for the stake, mistake, <laughs> for the sake of stability. Yeah, Catherine, but they don't do that. <laughs> no. Well, part of this is also Catherine underestimates the weight of religious conviction in this conflict. So let's talk a little bit about the Huguenots and what makes them different. So Catherine believed erroneously that the differences were primarily in their very different dogmatic beliefs. We already talked a little bit. I mentioned Jean and how she was like, Jean you know, the queen. Jean the queen. Yeah. Just, just the fluff of it all. Um, but the thing, the thing that really separates them is Catholics traditionally believed that the word of God could only be spoken from a pulpit by a priest. These services were often conducted in Latin, and it was considered heretical to conduct a mass in any other language besides Latin. Nobody knows Latin. (laughs) Protestants believed the word of God should be accessible to all men and women, and that people did not need the clergy to serve as an intermediary between them and God. Yeah. This also meant that the Bible should be made available in a person's native language. To own a Bible at this point was considered illegal. This is why the Bible is the most historically banned book to ever exist. Wait, why? The church didn't want people to read the Bible and interpret it for themselves. And you could be problematic nowadays, but well, but they still, they didn't, they wanted to be the only source of dissemination. Sorry. Oh, at its finest. Sorry, my cat just fell. You okay? 
But what made the Huguenots especially problematic is that they rejected two fundamental truths which, which stood as pillars for the Catholic Church. One, they rejected the Eucharist, which is the ceremony commemorating the Last Supper in which bread and wine are consecrated and consumed as being the literal blood and body of Christ. Mm -hmm. Really weird. <laughs> That's what the Protestants <laughs> believed. <laughs> Two. Huh, that those those cookie things, way more cookie things though that they give you, damn, they are delicious. We used to sit there and get yelled at by our mother because we put them on the roof of our mouth and just awkwardly suck on them. That is a little awkward. It's a little weird. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> Two, they rejected papal authority altogether, and as you can imagine, this was not just an issue for Catholic France; it is a very threat to papal authority itself. We I'm know. Not even gonna go into that. Yeah. I'll leave that for a, you. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> we know now that the Huguenot faction misinterpreted Catherine's gentler policies as being evidence that she sanctioned them. And so they begin to practice more openly and grew bolder with time in voicing their disapproval of the corruption in the church. Guys, come on. <laughs> They're just wanting to worship openly. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> So part of Catherine's response to the rising unrest in the country was to call a series of councils to debate the religious issues on the table, believing reason and a mutual desire for peace in the kingdom among both sides would be able to resolve the issue. Yeah, no, you guys are literally fighting over worshiping the same God, just how you do it. Yes. That is... <laughs> okay, go ahead. <laughs> no, I mean, spoiler alert, it doesn't work. Uh. Um, so... Uh, basically, she she gives the Protestant cause a platform to speak their beliefs. And, and one of the things that happens, um, and it occurs during the Colloquy of Pussy. What the fuck? Did I you probably say? said that wrong. Anyway, <laughs> so let me see. I want to see. Where is it? Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> I love how I'm like, oh, I can get it. No, I can't. I don't so, speak French. <laughs> theologian Theodore de Bays gave a rousing speech about the Eucharist. This is he's a Protestant. Okay. Um, he said, before the most prominent supporters of the Roman Catholic Church and the royal family, including oh. Catherine and her young sons, oh, no. he declared that he believed the body of Christ was as far removed from the bread and wine served during the ritual as was heaven from earth. He's not wrong. This speech scandalized the Catholic representatives who broke out into a frenzy and cast an accusatory eye on Catherine. How dare you say that our bread and our wine is in blood and body? <laughs> How could a good mother and queen possibly stand by to have such blasphemy spoken in front of her? Catherine simply responded that she and her sons would live and die as Catholics. This is why fanaticism is dangerous. This whole episode. Because you literally have fights about fucking wafers we're just, and wine. It's not even wine. It's grape juice. Cat, we're just in the debate portion. No. <laughs> it's just such The whole thing is blasphemy in and of itself. Um, so as mentioned, religious fanaticism makes strange bedfellows of old enemies, and this is right around the time Montmorency joins up with the Guises. Good. That Great. too. <laughs> so with Montmorency and the Duke of Guise now allied, Catherine found herself treading on very thin ice as she continued to champion her cause for tolerance and clemency. It wasn't long before people accused her of heresy and being a secret Protestant herself, which we know emphatically that she was not. Yeah, but again, fanaticism. And that's not to say fanaticism and devotion are entirely different. You're allowed to be a devout Catholic or a devout Protestant and not be this crazy. 
In January of 1562, Catherine and the Hapital drafted up the Edict of January, which was a treaty that officially recognized Protestants as citizens of France and afforded them a series of limited rights. This, <sighs> this, Sorry, wow. This decree of tolerance was the first time Protestants were recognized as having any legal rights in the country of France. So because they were Protestant, they didn't have rights? Yes. Cool. Mm -hmm. You guys are still way ahead than women. So good job. <laughs> True. <laughs> Protestants would be allowed to practice their religion so long as it occurred outside of town walls. There, they were also forbidden from worshiping on Sundays and on Catholic feast days. And if you know anything about Catholicism, feast it's days are like stolen from paganism. Well, but the feast days are literally like every three days. <laughs> True. Sure well. Predictably. The Catholic dominated parliament refused to ratify the treaty on their end. Not only was the treaty unpopular within the Catholic faction of France, but it also drew criticism from the Pope in Rome and King Philip II of Spain. To show their displeasure with the treaty, oh, here we go. Francois of Guise and Montmorency both left court. It, that's called the tantrum, ladies and gentlemen. Grown-ass adult tantrum. Adding to the ever-growing soap opera. Did they stomp? Yes, they I just they had all of them go, men with a big giant pout and just stomp off. And like, well, okay, Adding to the ever-growing soap opera, Antoine de Bourbon, the hapless and ineffective de facto leader of the Bourbon cause, defected to the Catholic cause and suddenly pronounced pronounced the Duke of Guise to be his greatest friend. Um, wow! They bribed him. Cool. They gave him Great. lots more money and land to add to the bar. Great. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, and he starts to openly condemn the edict. In defecting to the Catholic cause, Antoine alienated himself from both his wife, Jean, the Queen of Navarre. Jean the Queen. Jean the Queen. <laughs> <laughs> who had recently converted openly to Protestantism. Oh, wow. And he alienates himself from his brother, Condé. But this deflection also allowed Condé to officially step up and openly proclaim himself to be the leader of the Huguenot forces. And Louis was by far the more capable of the two brothers and all too eager to take on the Protestant cause. I feel like everyone's like, Antoine's gone? Fuck yeah. Let's yes. do this. <laughs> Let's actually do this now. <laughs> Meanwhile, tensions continued to rise around the country. Catholic monks were being murdered. Oh, God. And churches pillaged in southeastern France where the Huguenot faction held more sway. Because, again, that's where Navarre is. Okay. So what you're saying is there's no good guys in that story. And then Parisian Catholics retaliated by attacking Huguenot gatherings in Paris. Yes, there are no good guys in the story. It's literally like, ugh. So the country had become dry kindling on a hot day that had not seen rain for several months. So California. <laughs> just waiting for some errant wind to come along and strike a fire to set it ablaze. Stop with your poetry. <laughs> on March 1st, 1562... The Duke of Guise was riding through the small town of Vassy and became alarmed when he heard a choir of voices singing psalms in a barn. He became alarmed because he heard people singing. Cool. Go ahead. The Duke and his armed escort were making their way to a nearby church to hear Catholic Mass as it was Sunday. Ugh. You guys didn't see that, but I rolled my eyes hard. This gathering of Protestants singing in a bar, in Bless a barn. You know, I mean, either one was a clear violation of the Edict of January, and the Duke became enraged. He became enraged because people were singing on Sunday! To this day, no one knows who provoked the fight that broke out. I think but in we the know end, who provoked the fight. 74 Protestants were killed and 104 were wounded. Jesus. Among the dead were women and children. Ew, fuck this guy. 
The Duke of Guise escaped with a slash to his face and apologized for the encounter, calling it a regrettable accident. Are you fucking kidding me? You don't accidentally fall into mass murder. But this lit the dry kindling of religious unrest within France and catapulted the country into a fervent and violent frenzy that would last for several decades and marked the official start of the French wars of religion. I mean, I understand that because I'm in a violent frenzy and I wasn't even involved. If you're already in a violent <sighs> frenzy, we're not oh going to do well at the end. <laughs> Sorry, guys, in advance for all the bullshit that's going to come out of my mouth. When Catherine heard the news, she wrote to Condé to plead with him to remember his pledge to uphold peace within the kingdom. No! <laughs> but by this point, Condé was done with the niceties. He had been outraged by the massacre at, Vass at Vassy, as all the other Huguenots were. With Condé if at the helm... Catholic, you'd be outraged too, but here we are. With Condé <laughs> at the helm, the Huguenots began to target various cities and castles, and the civil war within the country began in earnest. Um, this is right around the time that Coligny joins Condé um, as the admiral. I'm still stuck on, no one knows who started it. Well, it's probably the guy who wrote in. Well, yeah, because they're not going to document it. More than likely, yeah, he just went on a violent rampage. Yeah, if you just rampage. rode along and ignored the singing and people worshipping the same God you're worshipping, then this would never happen. But continue. <laughs> I'm so sorry. The first couple of cities they end up taking are Orléans and Rouen, the latter of which was an especially sore spot for the Guise family because it's in the heart of Normandy, which was territory belonging to the Guises. So these are targeted attacks. Maybe don't be an asshole and people will attack you. Condé was careful to say these targeted assaults were not religiously motivated, but instead motivated? motivated by a desire to remove evil counselors surrounding the king. We've heard this before. Ooh, Remember Edward II? That's a good loophole. Yes. So their whole thing is, we are not against the royal family or Charles. We just want to remove the Guises because they are going to destroy his reign. Yeah, because they literally murdered 74 people and wounded 100 and what, four more? Mm -hmm. Catherine attempted to parley with Condé's forces several times to preserve the treaty previously drafted for Protestant tolerance, but alas, to no avail. As the Huguenots are making their way through the country, local skirmishes between the two factions escalate. Huguenots pillaged Catholic monasteries and executed more Catholic monks. Not a fan of that. Go ahead. 200 Protestants were drowned in the city of oh Tours, and Huguenots pillaged royal crypts and even retrieved the heart of Francis II and burned it. Well, he's dead. Mm -hmm. He's not going to help you. <laughs> what? Okay. <laughs> We're just I'm in just the very beginning. I'm just duct tape and just listen to you, and you'll, all you hear is muffled screaming. <laughs> Maybe something shattering as I throw it across the room. <laughs> Unable to stand by while rebel Huguenot forces held the city of Rouen, royalist forces marched on the city to reclaim it. And Catherine insisted on traveling with the royalist forces. So the 43-year-old Queen Regnant, um, sorry, Queen Regent, walked the ramparts as spirited and animated as ever, and it was said that she was particularly interested in watching her cannons fire on the rebel forces. The Duke of Guise, Antoine de Bourbon, and Montmorency all pleaded with Catherine to remove herself from the ramparts for fear that she might get hit by cannon fire, and she responded, my courage is as great as yours, and refused to leave. In okay. the end... <laughs> It was Antoine de Bourbon who should have been more worried. I really thought you were going to be like, in the end, she did get hit by a cannon. <laughs> it was very tragic. She's fine. <laughs> Antoine was shot in the shoulder by an errant arquebus. 
what did you call me? It's a long <laughs> rifle. Oh, okay. So Antoine would hang on to life long enough to see the royalist forces retake the city of Rouen, but perish not long after. As fickle right before death as he had been in life, Antoine de Bourbon gave his confession to a Catholic priest one day and then proclaimed that he wished to die openly as a Lutheran the following. Maybe you shouldn't have switched fucking sides for the money, <laughs> asshole. You don't get to switch back right before death. Sorry. On November 17th, 1562, Antoine de Bourbon officially died. His eight-year-old son, Henry de Bourbon, becomes the new King of Navarre and first prince of the blood. Oh my god. What? I just, it's eight years old. <laughs> yeah. Charles is nine. <sighs> He's probably ten right now, but. <laughs> Henry's like, I beat you. I was eight. You were nine. I was younger than you. So I don't know if you remember this, but Henry was prophesied by Catherine's astrologers to succeed her sons on the throne of France. Wait, this Henry? This little Henry de Bourbon. Oh, so now no. he's King of Navarre. Catherine. And she's panicking? Catherine decides to keep him close to her as a ward for a couple years. Oh, no. She doesn't want him to go back to Jean because she's afraid Jean will um, radicalize him in the Protestant faith. Mm -hmm. it's not, so you kidnapped him, is what? Kind of. You kidnapped him. Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Political prisoner, cool. Once Rouen had been taken, royalist forces turned their attentions to the city of Orléans. And it was here that they suffered another huge blow. Francois of Guise, the indisputable and at many times insufferable leader of the French military forces, was also shot in the back with an arquebus by a Huguenot spy named Petro de Mer. So you think Pericles Hill might be one of those guns? <laughs> <laughs> Just that's the pattern. For them, yeah. <laughs> Catherine found herself juggling a very complex myriad of emotions related to the Duke of Guise's death. On the one hand, he was insufferable in both his ambition and his personality. But on the other hand, he had been one of France's most form formidable military commanders. He was the devil she knew well and one that had protected her family for decades, questionable methods and all. She was happy to be rid of him, but she was also a little scared. Yeah, she's like, who the fuck is going to replace him? Catherine was also outraged by the cowardly manner with which he had been killed. Determined to uncover the motivation behind the murder, Petro de Mer confessed under harsh interrogation that he had been hired by Coligny to turn cloak. Um, so, can we believe what comes out of his mouth after torture? So, de Mer would later recount this confession oh, okay. as it had been made under extreme duress, but the damage had already been done. Do you need to tell me that torture is not an effective method for him? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, <laughs> well. <laughs> The Guise family would never forgive Coligny, and this singular act would spark a violent blood feud that would plunge the country into war for the next decade. Great! We have a fucking religious war happening, and let's just add a blood war for fun. Mm -hmm. Blood just feuds. Are, it's, it's France. Fun. What do you expect? Oh, great. <laughs> it also served to sow the seeds of mistrust and doubt in Catherine herself. From this point on, Catherine was afraid that Coligny was lost to religious fanaticism and would not stop until her most important generals, her children, and she herself were all dead in the ground. Never good when you stop getting terrified. No, so the Decisions thing... Decisions are about to be made and they're about to be bad. The thing with Catherine is um, she doesn't really have any personal vendettas towards any of the Huguenot leaders. She just sees them as rebels. Yeah. Um, Coligny is different. She, she hates him. Uh-oh. She does not trust him. She will never trust him because of this. That's now, who is Gaspard de Coligny? That you're about to tell me. French noblemen were notorious for their faux civility, but 
but Coligny was the opposite. He was honest, frank, and stoically straightforward. Most of the French nobility smiled and shook the hand of their enemy. Not Coligny. He did not hide behind the safety of ignorance when named in this conspiracy, and he even claimed to be aware of many plots made against the Duke of Guise's life and that their status as enemies in a war meant that he didn't exactly sympathize either. Yeah, that's that's fair. <laughs> he openly admitted to hiring Demir to spy for him, but claimed that he did not actually trust the cat spa to be smart enough to carry out an assassination <laughs> with any great success. Oh, no! So, yes, he was guilty, but also not guilty because he didn't yeah. send any official orders. Yeah, I mean... Um, Coligny's status protected him because he's a nobleman. Yeah. And the fact that there was no substantial evidence tying him to the assassination meant he could not be punished for it. Demir was not so lucky. He was convicted of treason and then publicly executed in front of a Parisian crowd. Uh With the Duke of Guise now dead, Catherine became the de facto political leader of the Catholic Party. And predictably, as is the case any time a woman finds herself in power following the death of a powerful man, she too fended off whispers of being complicit in his death. Because God forbid a woman get in power just because she's smarter than all of the rest of you. <laughs> no, it has to be something nefarious and not okay. Nefarious. Nefarious. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> no longer encumbered by the descent of Guise within her own party, Catherine was able to work with both Condé and Coligny to draft a new treaty which ended the war. This treaty afforded Protestants even more freedoms than they had previously enjoyed. Okay, so she learned. Commoners were allowed to worship freely in their homes, while nobles were allowed to practice openly on their estates. Protestants were still barred from holding services within the city of Paris or any other city currently dominated by Catholic forces. It's not great, but it's better. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Sort of better. Sort of kind of better, but not really. So we are making steps towards progress. A little bit, a little bit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So... That treaty is known as the Edict of Amboise. Um, following Didn't we already hear something about Amboise? Amboise is where the conspiracy to begin the Huguenot party began. Okay. France finally got to enjoy temporary respite from all the fighting, um, at least in Yay! the open. What remained of this war was largely relegated to the shadows, and for several years, many assassination attempts would be made on various nobles it's from both sides. all bar fights and assassination attempts at this point. Mm-hmm. Like... Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) On August 17th, 1563, Charles IX was officially declared to be of age to recognize his majority and rule the realm. How old is he? 12? He's 14, I think. (laughs) They did it. Oh, Catherine. This is Catherine. (laughs) She has this declared a year early. Um, Interesting. She's like, son, I'm going to need you to take this because I'm done. (laughs) No, 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 no. Oh, no. (laughs) So this was another political move staged by Catherine, who knew the nobles generally felt a greater sense of loyalty to their monarch than they did the regent. Um, After his powers were officially confirmed, Charles... What is his superpower? I want to know. Charles turned back to Catherine and granted her the power to command and promise that she would continue to govern and command as much and more than before. Hell yes! The nobles then. Catherine's died. just like looking at all the nobles, like, <laughs> fuck you. She's literally standing next to him as he's sitting on his throne. Oh, I really hope she has a smirk on her face. And the nobles then get in line before the king, kissed his hand to publicly pledge homage to him, all the while understanding that he was officially under the thumb of his mother and they were really pledging their loyalty to Catherine. 
Oh, that's she, so great. She's a master of theatrics. She is just so <laughs> snug behind them. She's just like, so cute while I win again. <laughs> As for the boy himself, he had the same sickly countenance that his brother Francis had before him and a birthmark between his nose and upper lip that lent to an unkind nickname. So he was called both the Snot King and the Brat King. Okay. <laughs> was it a birthmark or a cle- cle- cleft lip? I, I don't cleft know. Lip? I love how you looked at my lips when I came back. <laughs> I was like trying to picture it. Stop trying to make out with me. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> Um, maybe both. I'm not sure. Interesting. I didn't, we can look up pictures after this. Despite all of this, Catherine was determined to make a formidable king out of him in the image of his father and his grandfather. She counseled him to get maybe to not. know his maybe subjects, <laughs> to take the time to meet with anyone that came to petition him at court personally and inquire about their personal lives and families to help inspire loyalty. The combination of all of the education. She's giving them renaissance education, yeah. too. So the combination of the education, the vigorous administrative duty, and the running of a kingdom for this poor 14-year-old boy oh, no. and his fragile health did not help. And in time, with each sick, sickly bout that he suffered, oh, no. Charles grew increasingly frustrated and became prone to fits of rage and violence. And it would get so bad later in his life that his own courtiers would be afraid of it. That's not great. No. I, mean, I understand fits of rage because I have them too, but I don't act on them. Unless it's <laughs> on a bunch of <laughs> Catherine also kept quite the menagerie. She was particularly fond of exotic birds and dogs and had one of the largest stables in all of Europe d- like due to her love of horses. She had like a famous breeding horse, uh, breeding program for the horses. Oh. If you wanted to like get good with the queen mother, it was very well known. Bring her a prize stallion or a mare. You're not going to oh, like her. Horse breeding is interesting. With this next one. Oh, no. <laughs> Catherine also kept two lions at one of her estates and a significant number of bears that traveled as part of her escort anytime she and Charles made a tour around France. Why? I don't. Just what? The bears just, are like, why? Just to show the mag- magnanimity, magnanimity, whatever. The, the ridiculousness? The ridiculousness of the French court. I have a bear. It makes me better than you. Also included in the menagerie was a monkey she took with her everywhere. What which kind? was said to bring good luck. Is it a capuchin? Because I love that. Probably. Like one of the little monkeys. Wow. Do you know how many <laughs> types of different species of monkeys? It was a little are? monkey. Okay. And it was good luck. Okay. <gasps> was it one of those little finger monkeys? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> she also had a troop of dwarves that had their <laughs> own household of servants to attend to them that she funded. She literally has animals and dwarves. She has like I a have, circus. I have yeah. issues with this. Um, and yeah, she's like literally the first part of. Yeah, so she was. Uh, so as you can imagine, this was extremely expensive to maintain, mm-hmm. and it did not help the state of the treasury. Cool, cool. A couple of years into Charles's reign, Catherine organized a huge royal progress that took the entirety of the French court all around France. A progress or a procession? I mean, it said progress in my is it a parade book but it's it's a procession okay. <laughs> um so taking a page out of francis the first's book uh-huh. catherine thought it was important for the people to see their king and to help inspire loyalty to see their sickly king mm-hmm. okay. the best way to do this was to travel to them oh, you want to take a sickly boy on a on a, a road trip well i mean fresh air is good for him yeah, yeah. <laughs> <But> travel <laughs> Not so much. Yeah, but they're traveling in like the comfort of luxury. Don't worry for poor Sniffly Charles, okay? 
<laughs> the other purpose for the royal procession was to champion the Edict of Amboise that had been drafted and to ensure the various regions and towns around France were honoring it. So it's a stink eye parade. Yes. Fucking focus. Well, it's 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 there, it's it's a two-prong sort yeah. of thing. Like yeah, you get yeah. to see the king, which the commoners love. Yeah. And she's also basically like meeting with each town leadership to make sure like there's no trouble going on over the course of a year and a half oh my god the french court (laughs) traveled from one castle to the next putting on banquets and balls and tourneys as they went with their lack of funds Mm -hmm. well so so here's the thing so they were unable to stay at any one place for longer than a month because whoever played host would be financially responsible for feeding and housing Everyone I on the you tour. Were for longer than like a week, and then you threw out a month like it was a thing. Mm-hmm. So they Can get. Can you to imagine a- having to host someone? I don't care who it is for a month. Yeah. Get the fuck not, out. Not not just after the a royal day. family. This is like any noble that wants to That's show up with great. their entire. That's household. terrible. I'd be like, you know what? I'm renovating. This is what all the castle. kingdoms. This is what. Nope. This is the medieval and Renaissance monarchy. Renovating my bathroom. It's just be a mess, court. and I can't. <laughs> like, get, get out. Please. You are not welcome. Please. I am poor. Are you me? I couldn't handle someone living with me for two weeks. <laughs> While traveling around the country, Catherine got to witness firsthand the areas of her kingdom that were honoring the Edict of Amboise she had drafted, and the areas that were still harboring grievances. Areas more influenced by Protestant ideals tended to give the royal procession a colder reception. Uh-oh. They're like glaring. Well, because it, it's, it's also fair. this disgusting display of opulence. Yeah, which the French are good at. In a country that's poor right now, yeah. dealing with taxes mm-hmm. and ha- dealing with religious unrest. Yeah. yeah. It, it, on some I degree, it. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just kind of a little out of touch it's with terrible. what's going on. Well, every royal family is out of yes. touch with what's going on. <laughs> at the end of the procession, Catherine anticipated a reunion with her beloved daughter, Elizabeth, who was now the Queen of Spain. Remember that from the last episode? Yep. The two wrote regularly to one another, but had yet to meet face to face since the day Elizabeth was married off to Philip. Oh, well. Catherine had also tried to arrange a meeting with Philip for years. The Spanish king, notorious in his strict adherence to Catholicism, abhorred Catherine's policy of clemency with the Protestant faction. He regularly counseled her to adopt stricter policies and huffed and puffed any time she gave Protestants even a little bit of leeway. I'm sorry, but did you see what happened when we were strict with them? Did you not learn from it? Because I did. Well, his response would be to kill them all. He's not great. Philip was so mistrustful of Catherine's silver tongue that he was reluctant to ever meet her face to face, lest she managed to charm him with empty promises as she had so had so often with everyone else in the past. Or she's just smarter than you all, and you call it a silver tongue he instead had, of what it is. Watch. He had taken to referring to her as Madame La Serpente. I want to be called that. Can you call me that from now on? <laughs> sure. <laughs> And once said of her that she hath too much wit for a woman and too little honesty for a Oh my god, you sent that to me and I was like, oof, <laughs> oof, okay. It's so it's such a it's such it's a fighting words. Good description of her though. Yeah. Yeah. Those are also fighting words. In the end, he found yet another excuse to avoid meeting her, but agreed to let his wife cross the Spanish border. Elizabeth and Catherine were finally reunited in the city of Bayonne. When Catherine and Elizabeth... I allow your daughter to go see his, your mother. Great, great. He really was like, I don't want your mother corrupting you. 
So when Catherine sure she's had enough of your shit, so well, so when Catherine and Elizabeth finally met, both broke down into tears. Aww. The two had become quite close after Elizabeth left for Spain and wrote to each other frequently. The letters Catherine wrote to Elizabeth offer a very rare glimpse into Catherine's emotional state, and no one else ever got to see that side of her. Oh, wow. I mean, yeah. You can't be emotional as a woman because then you're a witch or something. <laughs> but the tears would not last for long. In the six years that Elizabeth had been Queen of Spain, she had been groomed and molded by her Spanish husband to speak oh, and think no. as he did. By the age of 20, she had become Philip's mouthpiece to Catherine with nary a thought of her own. It was the first and last time mother and daughter would ever meet face to face again. And Elizabeth will die a couple of years later during childbirth at the age of 23. Oh, that's terrible. During their meeting, Philip had sent the Spanish Duke of Alba as his spokesman to try and convince Catherine to abandon the Edict of Amboise. The Duke of Alba... The amount of time that they spend trying to abolish that is just amazing. Yes. The Duke of Alba was frustrated by Catherine's unwillingness to relent even an inch on her end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> Although the talks were largely unsuccessful and only served to reinforce Catherine's reputation for flattery and manipulation, the Protestant faction in France viewed their meeting through an entirely different lens. Alba was by far the most feared Catholic in all of Europe due to his unwavering conviction in the Catholic faith and violent treatment of Protestants within his own country. He's basically the boogeyman for Protestants. Ugh. Yeah, not a good person at all. And Catherine is going to be haunted by this meeting. Well, yeah, you're basically never... meeting their enemy, and that raises a whole bunch of paranoia. Yes. Uh, so they, they believe from this point forward Catherine's not on their side. Well, also, the stuff, the rest of the stuff that happens in this episode, they believe is kind of inspired by this meeting. Oh, God. Catherine had every reason to believe that her royal procession through France had been successful and would enjoy tentative peace in the country for a couple more years. <laughs> that's. But the problem had not been solved. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) Um, And increasing tensions in France and Europe continued to fan the flames of mistrust between Catholics and Protestant reformers. She was literally like, my parade worked. We're all kumbayaing, right? (laughs) So the thing you have to also keep in mind, and and you'll get this as we go through our season two and Mm -hmm. we see these different queens interact. This fight between Catholicism and Protestantism is happening all over Europe. Yeah. yeah. The Spanish Inquisition is going on. Um, what did you call it? The Reconquista. The Reconquista. Reconquista. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, this, this is, I had to bring it up. This is different. This is yeah, I know. <laughs> that when that was happening, Isabella was trying to convert her country. But, but Philip is, he's sending inquisitors out to root. Protestants yeah. and heretics out. Yeah, it's not great. When uh, in the end, really, you were the heretics. I'm just kidding. Sorry. So it does not help that King Philip in Spain installed the Duke of Alba in the Netherlands and gave him full sanction to exterminate Protestant rebels at his whim. Oh my god, they're literally rebels because they're believing in a religion different from yours. Um, the Netherlands are also directly north of France and bordered with France. So oh. that action is very close yeah. to France. Yeah. As the atrocities of the Netherlands filtered down to France, the Protestant factions there grew increasingly outraged. Coligny would write to Catherine, protesting the treatment of Protestants within their own country. Her growing frustrations with him were captured in a letter to which she promised retaliation 
without respect to persons, religion, or any other consideration by the peace, but the peace of this state, should his agitations continue. The Catholic faction frequently vexed her as well, specifically Pope Pius IV, who threatened to excommunicate Queen Jean Albert, the Albert of Navarre, um, and also to physically have her removed from her position. Can you imagine Catherine just being like, I'm this is a sandbox and these fucking children will stop fighting. <laughs> like corners, kids, corners. <laughs> well, when it comes to the Pope, Catherine's feelings had always been that whatever a queen's religious beliefs, she believed that position of the monarch to be sacred from God mm-hmm. and for Rome to interfere set a dangerous precedent for any monarch in power. Yeah. So like Rome has a huge fucking head. Yes. And <laughs> well, but again, she does not trust Jean, but she's yeah. also like, you can't just remove her. Yeah. It's not okay. So she's she's pissed with both sides. Yeah, she's like, Up to this point, Catherine had done everything she could to pacify the growing unrest in France and adhere to a policy of tolerance with Protestant reformers. That's about to change. Unbeknownst to her, the growing atrocities in the Netherlands had provoked a new fear in the Huguenot faction of France. The Duke of Alba's massacres included high members of the nobility, and in time, the Huguenots believed their own time was coming in France. Catherine received several warnings of Huguenot troops preparing to attack strongholds around the country and even target her own family. Oh, great. But she writes them off as mere rumors, trusting in her edict of Amboise and the people's love of their king. No, you never trust in the people's love of their king. <laughs> and even Constable Montmorency's own confidence in his spy network, like, he also tells her, like, no, we're fine. I would hear about something if it was going to happen. Your he ass- work sucks. He assured her that no rebel group would be able to amass without him knowing, unaware that his network had long been compromised by this point. How do you not know? Oh, okay. <laughs> On September 27th, 1567, everything changes for Catherine and for France. So Huguenot forces organized by Conde and Coligny ambush Charles and Catherine and the royal family as they are attempting to flee the city of Mo. Oh, that's a direct. Mo. So did, why were they fleeing? Their, their purpose. So they, they finally do hear about these forces gathering around okay. the city. They can't ignore it. Yeah. And they know like really Conde and Coligny are trying to be like, we're going to physically capture the royal family and remove them from the Guises yeah. and Montmorency. And then we'll put a new government in place. But when you're the royal family facing down guns to your yeah, face. Yeah, I know. That's not. It's, yes. it's kind of scary. So they flee from the city of Mo and they make a beeline straight for Paris because it's a Catholic haven. Too little, too late. If not for the troop of Swiss mercenaries that Catherine had hired earlier, the royal family likely would have been captured. Instead, they were harried by Huguenot forces all the way until they reached the walls of Paris. Oof. Once safely inside, the Huguenot forces siege the city of Paris for several months. Oh my God. So here's no. here's another thing we need to keep in mind. The city of Paris is a character itself. Okay. So the citizens of Paris are under siege. They've got um, troops of Huguenots outside the city with guns and cannons, and they're being starved. Oh, God. So they're not going to be happy for long. No. Oh, no. Paris is its own character. Oh, no. And then... I'm sorry. You didn't draw an Eiffel Tower on your sheet here? No, I should have. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll add it to the sheet because I have I'll frame it. Um, the other thing that's going on is Catherine's 
lost all trust in the Huguenot forces, but she is the only one that can parlay with them. Yeah. And she has to do it in the dead of night because if the citizens of Paris see her talking um, to them, talking to them it just them. it just adds to her already black reputation. Oh, no. So she hates them. She's terrified, but she's trying to save Paris and yeah. her family. Because she's seen war all her life and mm-hmm. she's kind of sick of it. So Catherine did what she had to to negotiate peace. The end result being a full reinstatement of the Edict of Amboise, but she was... She would never again trust the Huguenots and her policies of tolerance and conciliation would be abandoned from this point on. Charles was forever changed as well. Not yet 20 years old and already prone to periodic rages, he vowed to destroy every last rebel right down to every member of their household. More losses were suffered on both sides. Constable Anne de Montmorency, renowned for having served five kings, was shot in the back during the Siege of Paris and died at the age of 74. Holy crap! He was given a funeral on par with a royal funeral and buried next to Catherine's late husband, Henry II, who had been his dearest friend. Oh, wow. Atrocities escalated by both sides around the country, with Protestants murdering Catholic priests in the street and enacting vicious and terrible punishments that prolonged their deaths and made them as painful as possible. I'm not going to go into the detail. Thanks. <laughs> that sounds gasp like awful already so Mm -hmm. but the deaths of protestants around the country numbered in the thousands following the attempted ambush on the royal family wow more protestants were killed in the months that followed this siege than had died during the two years of the two wars of religion combined holy shit Mm -hmm. wow that's not great In the years that followed, the economic situation deteriorated in France. Many people blame Catherine de' Medici's lavish parties and balls and what they viewed as an Italian sickness that infiltrated the French court. Okay, calm down. We were, I was agreeing with you up until the Italian sickness. (laughs) Yeah, they, well, because they're xenophobic too. They they want a scapegoat. I know. It's just ridiculous. Anytime you have somebody not from your country. Yep. (laughs) Given that the Reformation specifically cited the abuses of the Catholic clergy and its influence on the nobility, more and more people turned to Protestantism as they grew increasingly disenchanted with the direction the country was going in. But the, so literally Catholicism, like people of Catholicism, you literally pushed towards what you were afraid of. Like your actions mm-hmm. made what you were afraid of possible. Learn from yourselves. You won't, but... <laughs> But the attacks on reformers continued, and in time, people began to flee France for their safety to the Protestant country of Navarre, where Jean d'Albret and her now 15-year-old son, Henry de Bourbon, had also fled, turning to them as figureheads of the Huguenot movement. So, again, you can think of Jean and Henry. Jean the Queen and Henry. Jean the Queen every time. (laughs) You can think of Jean the Queen and Henry as being to the Huguenots with Catherine and Charles R. to the Roman Catholic faction. All right. Fighting continues on both sides for years. Having once been a champion for tolerance in her country, Catherine adopts a more openly aggressive policy towards their leadership, and she openly calls for the heads of Coligny and Condé both. Oh, that's not great, but also understandable because they were chased by them and then sieged and then, yeah, okay, fine. Yep. None of this is great, so. None of this is great. It's going to get worse. (laughs) This is right around the time the rumors of poisonings and black magic start. Oh, shit. 
So Catherine allegedly sent a poison apple to Coligny via her perfumer, oh my God. Metro Rene, and his poison gloves. She was also said to have life-size effigies of the Huguenot leadership locked away in a room that an Italian sorcerer would poke and prod at and hex for the Queen Mother's evil Oh my god, that would be the best job ever! Do you you remember Penny Dreadful? (laughs) Yes. And season two with the effigy of Vanessa? That's what I picture. That's really creepy, though. It's so creepy. That's so... But also, like, <laughs> literally just because she... Probably just because she believed in astrology. And then well, people were like, she's Exactly. Witch. It's like an Italian thing. She's a witch. She's bringing she's her... She's checking off all the boxes. <laughs> Over... Burn her. She's a witch, obviously. Over time, Catherine eventually lost the support of her longtime advisor, Michelle de l'Hopital, who grew disenchanted with Catherine's changed attitude towards Huguenot reformers. And he eventually resigns from the council. So the only voice of reason left is gone now. Oh, no, that sounds right, but awful at the same time. With much of the senior leadership of the royalist faction either defecting or dying in battle, as again, Montmorency, Francois de Guise, all of them, um, we have a new group of people come in um, (laughs) to take over. (laughs) So this is when Catherine's younger son, Henry, the Duke of Anjou, is appointed at like 17 as the military leader of the royalist faction. You never appoint a teenager as a military leader. (laughs) It's not going to work. They can't even, oh God, they can't even control themselves. So a bit on Henry. Oh no. We're going to call him the Duke of Anjou to distinguish him from Henry de Bourbon. Duke of Anjou, not Anjou. (laughs) Anjou. Anjou. Whatever. The Duke of, I'm going to. The Duke of A. (laughs) The Duke of Anjou. (laughs) Um. A little bit on him. Henry is the most fanatical of Catherine's children. Oh, no. He was said to have a bit of a rivalry with his brother Charles as well. Because, you know, we got to measure our ducks. Yeah, duck measuring is a thing. Oh, my God. There's so much duck measuring at work. And now I use that and everyone appreciates it. Yes. (laughs) So, whereas Charles has to maintain some semblance of control and decorum when dealing with the Huguenots because he's the king. Henry is able to give. The 17-year-old doesn't have to do anything but be a shit. He is, a, he is given free reign. Um, basically, he's able to give free reign to his hatred, and it makes him a bit of a wild card. But the fanatical side of the Catholic faction loves him. Of course he's they God's do. champion. He's 17 years old and makes bad decisions. So the tide turns for the Royalist faction on March 13, 1569, at the Battle of Jarnac, when the longtime leader of the Huguenots and the thorn in everybody's side, Louis de Conde, dies in battle. Conde famously rode out with a broken leg to join his forces to Coligny's, and once his horse was brought down, Conde was trapped beneath it and surrendered to Henry's to the Duke of Anjou's forces. So he had a broken leg before the horse fell on it? Mm-hmm. Wow, that's fun. <laughs> Henry does not possess any of the chivalric sensibilities that French soldiers were known for up to this point. As a 17-year-old, surprise. He shoots Condé in the back of the head, and then he ordered his men to drag his body around on the battlefield by a mule. Wow. Wow. That's... mm -mm. They have no regard for human life at this point, or any respect for the 17-year-old is learning to have no regard. I bet you he's going to be a psychopath when he gets a year older. Wait till he's the king. Oh, fuck. I forgot about that. Oh! (laughs) Following the death of Conde and a couple of other battles won by royalist factions, the tide of war shifted in Catherine's favor again, and another uneasy peace is made. But the cost is incredibly high for the Huguenots. 
15,000 Protestants died at the Battle of Moncontour alone. Wow. Um, That's a lot of fucking people. Like, yeah. Jesus. It's not over. Mm. Um, you, <laughs> the other thing, Conde has a son named Louis, so he is now the Prince of Conde. So this is another young Huguenot coming up. So just okay. not going to talk about him too much today, but he is in the background. I was going to say, so he is he a Huguenot that's been brought up in this in this strife between mm -hmm. religions? That's yes. all he knows. Yes. Cool, so he's not going to be able to learn. Yes. Great. <clears throat> but with this tentative peace, Catherine was able to focus on something other than war. It's one of her favorite pastimes. So as we know, Catherine has a huge brood of children. Okay. They're... <laughs> They're coming of age to be married. Oh, no. So, so they're four. I'm just kidding. <laughs> one of her favorite pastimes is playing matchmaker. So <laughs> King Charles was married off to Princess Elizabeth of Austria. Damn, take it. The daughter of Maximilian II, who was the Holy Roman Emperor at the time and the King of Bohemia. Elizabeth satisfied one of Catherine de Medici's longstanding ambitions to link the House of Valois with the House of Habsburg. The House of Habsburg is probably the biggest, like, most powerful house oh. of Europe. Okay. They eventually come to England. Mm -hmm. And um, anyway. <laughs> anyway, move on. It's a couple hundred years down the line. Bonus points with this marriage. Um, it's an especially prosperous Catholic match because Elizabeth is very Catholic. Oh, okay. This Elizabeth. <laughs> Good Lord. Henry, the Duke of Anjou, hilariously had his hand proposed to Queen Elizabeth of England. Wait, hold on. Her son was married off to Elizabeth or her daughter Elizabeth was married off? <laughs> so there's a lot of Elizabeths. So In one brood? <laughs> so her, her <laughs> oldest daughter Elizabeth had been married to King Philip of, of Spain. Spain. Yeah. This is Elizabeth, a Habsburg princess, is married to King Charles. Oh, okay. There we are. And and then, that's what I thought, but I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> and then this is Henry, the Duke of Anjou. His hand is offered. The 17-year-old general's hand is offered to. Queen Elizabeth of England. Oh, my God. Who is 20 years older than him at this point. Oh, <laughs> oh no. Um, so she likely had no intention of ever marrying him, but Queen Elizabeth of England is a master chess player when it comes to teasing matrimony long enough to get A, her nobles off her back, and B, to like, you know, if there's war or tension with a country going on, which with France is always, always, um, she would do this with Spain, she did it with the Netherlands, she did it with all the countries to like get them off her back for a little bit. Oh, God. Um, but wait, Catherine did this or Elizabeth? Elizabeth did okay. this. This is when we get to Elizabeth, we'll talk about oh, God, this her. Be an amazing party. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> um, next kid. Henry was uh, oh, our, our Duke of Anjou. He was incredibly outraged by the proposal and famously rejected Elizabeth for being a heretic and a bastard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You want to talk about your, your fucking background? <laughs> you murdered people. <laughs> the most important marriage proposal for our story is the one between Catherine's daughter, Margot, and Henry of Navarre. Henry de Bourbon. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Do you remember the Red Wedding on Game of Thrones? Oh, no. Everything we're about to talk about is par partially inspired. Those events. Oh, cool. So, cool, cool. Here we go. This is going to be fun. 
So Margot was notoriously vivacious and an utterly shameless flirt. She was said to bamboozle any young bachelor that came to court. All of Catherine's children. So Catherine has this amazing uh, constitution, charisma. She's like always very healthy and just always active. All of her children are sick. Are always perpetually sick. She's oh, very aggressive. She's like a white force sucker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Margot is the only child of hers that like got the same constitution as hers. Mm-hmm. So she's she is full of life. She is vibrant, but she's very flirty. Mm-hmm. She doesn't really observe the decorum that a young lady is supposed to. That's fair because it's stupid anyway. Even her own brothers were said to fall under her spell. Oh come on. And um, if the scandal of possible incest wasn't bad enough, Margot was said to have fallen madly in love with Henry of Guise. This was Francois of Guise's son, and he's the new Duke of Guise. When Catherine and Charles learned of the affair and how dangerously she'd come to losing her virtue, if she hadn't already, we don't know for sure, um, both Charles and Catherine beat her so bad that she had bruises and handfuls of her hair ripped from her head. That's terrible. Yes. What the fuck? Yes, poor Margot. Yeah. So that's Margot. A marriage between Margot and Henry of Navarre had the potential to unite France in the same way Henry VII and Elizabeth of York ended the War, the war of the Roses. Okay. That is the idea that Catherine has right now. Varying political ambitions rallied both for and against the marriage. So the Catholic faction is like, no, that's the Pope. And that's the Catholics in France. And that's even King Philip of Spain is like, don't marry him. Yeah. Um, And then you've got Henry's mother, Jean the Queen. Jean the Queen. Who also opposed it because she does not trust Catherine at this point and openly criticized the moral decay of the French court for which Catherine presided over. Ouch. So as Catherine schemed to marry Margot off to Henry of Navarre, she and Charles also reached out to Coligny in hopes that they could coax him back to court. Um, So Coligny had long been exiled from court and willingly for the most part, as he had very valid reasons to believe he might be assassinated. Um, But at the time, the Guise family had conveniently... crying about assassination. (laughs) The Guise family are once again out of favor. So as they're out of favor, that means the Protestants can kind of come back and yeah, try to... They're not in danger-ish. As much in danger. Yeah, yes. <laughs> they're very much still in danger. This is a real fear that they all yeah. have. But as has been the way with politics since the dawn of time, Charles and Catherine both had need of Coligny when it came to mending the rift between the Huguenots and the Catholic forces. Now that political and military ambitions were shifting again. So Charles was looking to go to war with the Netherlands, having been bitten by the bug of military glory that kings are known for. He wants his Agincourt. He wants his fight with, you know, he just, he wants glory to his name. Because he's a dude. You're a fucking king. You're a king already. He wants to measure his duck against the other ducks, okay? (laughs) Catherine herself wanted to disarm the growing Huguenot court that was forming in the city of La Rochelle. So on the western coast of France, you've got a separate court of just Huguenots forming that Jean is leading. And Coligny as well. Dangerous. Yeah. So she wants she wants to disarm that. Sounds kind of rifty. A little bit. (laughs) She also needs the help in gaining Jean the Queen's support for the marriage between Margot and her son, because Jean's not having it. Jean's like, no, that's not great. 
The more Coligny and Charles began to work with one another, the closer they became, and they even developed a similar mentorship relationship that Henry II and Montmorency had. In Coligny, Charles found someone more amenable to his plans to invade the Netherlands, and he also has a father figure. Okay. And much to Catherine's delight, Coligny was supportive of the marriage between Margot and Henry of Navarre as well. Because he's like, yeah, like, let's, let's have peace. This is great. Weird how some people want that. And he agrees to reach out to Jean on her behalf and try oh, to okay. try to arrange a meeting. Okay. Um, so who is Jean of Navarre? So Jean, <laughs> Jean the Queen. Jean was the daughter of Henry II, King of Navarre, and Louise of Savoy, who had been Francis I's sister. Oh. That's Catherine's father-in-law. Okay. The first king from episode one. Uh-huh. The duck measuring king. Oh, God. So Jean is his niece. Wait. She's she's got Valois oh, blood God. in her. Okay. Yes, okay. Can you make that connection? <laughs> Even at a young age, she gained a reputation for being stubborn and tenacious. Her first husband had been the brother of Anne of Cleves. This was Henry VIII's fourth wife in England, the one that lived oh. because she was ugly, oh, according no. to Henry. Oh, so he annulled the marriage. Jesus. She lucked out because he had gout. <laughs> So <laughs> she was notoriously forced into this marriage and had to physically be carried to the altar by our old friend Montmorency. This is Jean, the queen. This is terrible. Oh no. Later, she would end up getting that marriage annulled, and then that's when she married Antoine de Bourbon, which was a love match. Oh, okay. After well, he right. died, she remained the queen regnant until her son Henry could come of age. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Having already converted to Protestantism, Jean's devotion to her faith led her to become the de facto spiritual and political leader of the Huguenots, just as Catherine was for the Catholics. So when it came to marrying her son to Margot, Jean had two main concerns. The first was that Margot was Catholic and she wanted to ensure that Henry could remain a Protestant. Equally of concern to Jean was her prospective daughter-in-law's character and the degeneration she observed in the French court. So again, the Protestants abhor pageantry, drinking, open sexuality, and gasp, the dancing. So everything Margot is. Yes. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, and she was very scared that Margot would corrupt her son. In the end, Catherine was relentless in her pursuit. It took considerable convincing. Um, and in, in one of the letters that Catherine wrote to Jean, she was like, I promise to give you safe conduct. Like, nothing will happen to you. You'll be yeah. fine. No assassins will get you. Oh. Jean responded, Jean responded by saying, pardon me if reading that I want to laugh because you want to relieve me of a fear that I've never had. I've never thought that, as they say, you eat little children. Whoa. Yes. Oh <laughs> in the end. Yeah, I'm just like, okay, well. <laughs> in the end, the two matriarchs finally met and agreed to the union of their children and set a wedding date. Ironically enough... Jean would travel to Paris months before the wedding was set to take place to help with the arrangements and die within a month of arriving at the age of 44. Whoa. Jean had been sick off and on for several months before arriving in Paris, and an autopsy revealed that she had tuberculosis. Oh, Despite these findings, the prevailing rumor that developed Catherine in the following poisoner. months was that Catherine had her perfumer murder Jean with his famous poison gloves. Um, the rumor was largely Catherine's fueled. Like, she just died. It fucking happened. Well, it's not my fault. <laughs> oh no. 
everything else that's about to happen is her fault. And this is why that rumor gets attached. Oh, okay. That's fair. Are you ready? Yeah. Jasmine's so, ready. Um, She's sitting there. Ready to go. I'm going to give you a disclaimer. This is going to get dark. It's going to get very dark. It's, it's going to get bad. So, okay. So Huguenots and Catholics have been at peace for months now. Coligny continued to grow closer with Charles, finding that the king's ambitions for military glory coincided nicely with his own ambitions to start a conflict in the Netherlands. For Coligny, this served as an opportunity to drive out the Spanish forces in the Netherlands and help Protestants gain the upper hand there. Catherine openly disapproved of military intervention. She did not want to agitate Spain because, again, their forces are in the Netherlands. She knew that if French forces engaged, it would have been the same thing as declaring war on Spain. And she knew France could not afford another war with Spain no. and likely would lose. Plus, her daughter's there. No, her daughter's dead now. Oh, shit. Okay. Remember, oh, yeah. she died. Yeah. I say that. She schemed to have Margot married to him at one point. Ew. Yeah. <laughs> so, Catherine and Coligny would both whisper in Charles's ear, but in the end, Catherine had the bigger trump card. She knew her son was overly dependent on her and threatened to permanently retire from French court and return to Florence if he did not side with her. Wow. This put the fear of God back in Charles. I don't actually know how to do this because you never actually taught me. There there were times when she would get sick and could not run the kingdom and he would fuck up. I didn't have time to talk about it, but yes, he was scared. He was just watch your mother work and you learn. He didn't. God. (laughs) So... When it came time to vote for military intervention in the Netherlands, every single member of the Privy Council voted no, save for Coligny, and Coligny was not happy. And in what was probably the dumbest moment of his life, he said the following. Oh, no. Madame, if the king decides against a war, may God spare him from another from which he will not be able to extricate himself. I am not able to oppose that which your majesty has done, but I am assured that she will have occasion to regret it. It was in this moment that Catherine decided Coligny had become too big of a problem and it was time to get rid of him. No, that's not... Oh, God. Coligny was to the Huguenots what Francois Guise had been to the Catholic cause. He was singularly minded in his pursuits, arrogant and dangerous. He had no trouble dying for the sake of his God and worse yet, he would gladly sacrifice the lives of hundreds, if not thousands, for his God as well. Catherine was not about to let him drag France into another war. Oh, no. So in the book I'm reading, Leona Frida suggests that Catherine did not set out to accomplish this task with any type of malicious glee. She did so dispassionately and with the same pragmatic coldness she would have employed with any other administrative task. I don't know if that makes it better. But let's not kid ourselves here. Yeah. Catherine loves her children. Yeah. Catherine She's loves mom her bearing place it out. with her children. Yeah. She is notoriously territorial and jealous of anyone who threatens her position with her children, especially the king. And she is Charles's number one advisor. And Charles was particularly susceptible to the camaraderie that Coligny provided him. Their budding friendship would have also posed a threat to Catherine's control over her son. So Catherine ends up conspiring with her younger son, the Duke of Anjou, and the Guise family again. A year old who just is fine with murder. And the Guise family. Now they're convenient again. (laughs) This is not great. No. (laughs) Catherine likely conspired with the Duchess of Nemours, 
who had been Francois de Guise's widow and still harbored a grudge for Coligny's part in her husband's murder. You remember that? He, like, hired that assassin, but not really. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So his wife never forgot. Oh. They have the perfect opportunity to perform this assassination coming up as well. The upcoming wedding of Margot of Valois and Henry of Navarre. You're going to ruin? Because this wedding. you gave me warning. This wedding. This wedding is an opportunity for all of the Huguenot leadership to come to Paris. Oh, no. So picture the scene. This was to be a wedding of epic proportions. Margot is the vivacious 19-year-old sister of the King of France, beloved by Paris. Mm -hmm. And Henry de Bourbon is the 18-year-old King of Navarre. It was a union of France's darling Catholic princess and Navarre's handsome Huguenot king. So it could have been great. If done correctly, their union could mend the painful scars of France. You know, the tone you just gave me in that sentence tells me it wasn't done correctly. The wedding was to be held in Paris, which is its own character. Oh God, Paris is like a man. <laughs> a notoriously Catholic sympathizing city that harbored very few Protestants. Thousands of Huguenots flooded the city to see the wedding. Parisians were excited for a party and seemed to welcome the Huguenots that came to their city initially. But that slowly changed over time as priests took to the pulpit during Sunday mass and condemned not only the upcoming wedding, but the sinful heretics that flooded their city. The atmosphere grew fraught with tension in the weeks leading up to the wedding. Y'all couldn't let it alone for a fucking week. <laughs> when Coligny arrived in Paris, he'd received several warnings about a plot for his life and had been advised to leave the city. Some even encouraged him to take advantage of the growing Huguenot population and take up arms. Coligny refused, famously saying, I would rather be dragged through the mud in Paris than see a civil war in this land once more. I feel like your dad is about to catapult that into reality, so here we are. On August 18th, 1572, Margot of Valois and Henry of Navarre were officially married. The bride's wedding gown was bedazzled with precious gemstones. Catherine de' Medici abandoned her famous widow's attire for the occasion and wore a gown of deep purple brocade. If anyone is wondering what Margot thought of this whole thing, it was made clear when she refused to speak up when asked if she would take Henry for her husband. King Charles was visibly irritated by the display and marched up to his sister, forcing her head down to indicate her consent in the marriage. That's fucking fantastic. And then it was done. Margot was officially the Queen of Navarre. Yay! Happy endings for everybody. No, that's, that's a lie. No? I know you lie. No, you don't think so? No. Well, okay, so, like, a series of banquets, bacchanals, mass balls, theatrical shows, and faux battles followed for days after the wedding. Which you literally already spoiled us by saying the wedding from... The tensions between the Huguenots and Catholics in the city relaxed as everyone parties and revels yeah, in the festivities. Yeah, you mean with drink? Because anything, anytime anyone gets drunk, it's totally going to end well, especially when they're already rivals. One, one such revelry involved jousting. Um, that involved jousting occurred just as Skolligny received yet another cipher warning him that his life was in danger. You remember what happened to that one guy who got the <laughs> fucking shards in his face even after his wife warned him? Coligny brushed it off, but other members of the Huguenot leadership began to take their leave of the city almost immediately following the wedding. I love how you're like, Coligny brushed off. Yeah, the same, the other guy totally brushed it off as well. Unbeknownst to Coligny. Unbeknownst. Unbeknownst. 
the Coligny. Just added a couple of letters in there. Whatever. It's fine. It's, I, I like your first one. Go back to it. It's too many letters in it anyway. Else. I like it. <laughs> Catherine and the Duke of Anjou had arranged for an assassin to shoot him from a house owned by the Guise family. On the morning of August 22nd, a shot sounded in the morning air as Gaspard de Coligny was making his way from the Louvre to his lodgings, just as he had bent down to fix a broken binding in his <gasps> shoe. Oh my god, no! <laughs> Coligny was shot in the elbow, narrowly escaping a mortal wound. Ow! I feel like I would have wanted to die if I was shot in the elbow! And one of his fingers was barely hanging on. <clears throat> yeah, oh, that's gross. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm here for gore. <laughs> His men carried him to safety, to the safety of his lodgings, while two members of his guards chased after the assailant, only to find the literal smoking gun still positioned in the widow, in the widow, the widow. in the window, absent a shooter. The would-be assassin had escaped thanks to a horse that had been waiting for him. So those two guards, they go and they chase him off to try and catch him. Yeah. Word of the he failed. bent down to tie his shoe. Mm-hmm. Basically... And that saved his life. Oh, his elbow or his finger, but his life. Word of the failed assassination attempt reached Catherine as a servant bent down to whisper in her ear. Observers noted that she received the news impassively, showing not a stitch of emotion. King Charles was a different story. She's like, damn it, damn it, damn it, damn it. Well, that's the other thing. This assassination was planned without Charles's knowledge. Oh, shit. So King Charles was a different story. He had been playing tennis and threw his racket down in a rage, crying out, Am I never to be left in peace? More trouble, more trouble. He then sent the surgeon, Amboise Barre, over to Coligny in order to try and save his life. So he sends his own royal surgeon. The surgery made for... Save his life? He got shot in the elbow. He's losing blood. Oh, yeah. Okay. (laughs) He's losing a lot of blood, okay? I don't need that. It's fine. The surgery made for an especially chaotic scene. As word spread through the city, an angry and outraged Huguenot mob flooded to the Hotel de Bethesi, where Coligny had been staying. The surgeon dug the bullet out of his elbow and amputated one of his fingers with dull scissors. It took like three times to cut it off. Why not use a fucking knife? You didn't have one. I don't know. He's like, oh, I brought the wrong bag. <laughs> it's my it's my wife's sewing kit. Here, let's just use these. <laughs> it's not here for us to ask, but yeah, it was I'm not, asking. Not great. Oh god. I mean, he's already in immense pain. It's fine. Add to it. <laughs> not long after, members of both the royal family and the Huguenot leadership still in town, including Henry of Navarre and his cousin Conde, filled filed into the room. King Charles raved and wept with remorse, pledging to investigate the attempted murder and promising vengeance against those that had planned it. Uh, that's your mom, bro. Not knowing it was his mother and brother that planned it. Oh, shit. Okay. Well, that's their fault. He also forbade citizens from taking up arms to avenge the attack on Goligny. Charles's rage and remorse was likely genuine, um, as, again, he'd been kept out of plans the plans that had been made by Catherine and the Duke of Anjou. Catherine and the Duke of Anjou both put on a spectacular show of rage and despair um, to, like, blow Charles out of the water. Oh, no. They They're too. Like, we didn't know anything about that. Oh, no, dad. They what? do this city the... with this wedding going on. Oh, my God. <laughs> they, too, pledged to uncover the would-be assailants and deliver justice. The crowd of Huguenots looked on dispassionately, and the tension of the room grew so thick it could be cut with a knife. 
thanks to the Duke of Anjou's memoirs, we know exactly what happened. So we know that Catherine had never been so fearful for her life as she was in this moment. She yeah. saw all these faces yeah. looking at her because nobody believed her. She's like, hey, guys. I wonder it why. Me. It wasn't me. <laughs> Catherine, <laughs> Catherine and the Duke of Anjou were then dismissed by Charles so that he and Coligny could speak in private. Ooh, that's not great. The king offered to move Coligny to the Louvre, where he could assure Coligny's safety. Huguenot leadership argued this was not safe and he should be removed from Paris immediately. Yeah. But Coligny said he trusted his king and elected to remain under his protection. Coligny, you literally had a chance to leave uh, before this. You ignored it. Maybe don't ignore it a second time. When the king joined his mother and brother in the carriage that took them back to their palace, he greeted them with an angry silence. Catherine asked Charles point blank what Coligny had said to him, to which the king responded that Coligny warned him that his mother and brother had usurped his position as king. Ooh, that's an awkward carriage, right? <laughs> yeah. You're like sitting knee to knee, too. That's so awkward. <laughs> yeah. I'm just like, I'm just gonna look at, look at how beautiful France is at this time of the night. <laughs> Catherine and the Duke of Anjou were both in dangerous water now, having aroused the anger of the king. Catherine knew it was only a matter of time before the assassin was discovered. The assassin had been a well-known associate of the Guise family, and she knew that if his identity was discovered, it was likely that her role in the plot would be compromised as well. As Catherine and the Duke of Anjou continued to plot their next move, the situation in Paris simmered violently, threatening to rupture. Uh -oh. So the visiting Huguenots were becoming increasingly enraged and agitated in the city. Many had come to the city already armed for the wedding. Um, already armed for well, the wedding. Well, a I lot know. of them were soldiers, so yeah. they were literally coming from like... Yeah, we're like, we just fought you five minutes ago. We know this is not going to end well. But they also did not trust the Catholic faction to not kill them. That's fair. Fair. The predominantly Catholic population of Paris was already a fervently anti-Huguenot city. Not long ago, they had suffered and starved their way through a siege led by Huguenot forces, and to make matters worse, France was in the middle of a drought and food prices had been rising. So they're already angry. Yeah. As the Huguenots became increasingly agitated and threatening, the Parisians prepared their defenses. Many closed down their shops and began to arm themselves in anticipation of an organized strike by Huguenot forces within the city. Back at the Louvre, tensions also increased between the Royalist faction and the Huguenot leadership. Brawls broke out in the walls of the castle, and one particular incident... Brawls in the walls. <laughs> so one particular incident suggested that the Huguenot leadership might have already been planning an attack on Catherine and the king okay. when one of the Huguenot barons came up to Catherine in front of everyone and proclaimed loudly that the new religion would not rest until the conspirators against Goligny were brought to justice. Dude, maybe not right now. Catherine <laughs> had already called a war council of her own, deciding that the only point of action was to preemptively strike the Huguenot faction before they struck first. Uh-oh. But first things first. She I mean, needed... did who struck first? Because, um, honey... It was. They're both literally like on the edge, guns pointed at each other. Yeah, but we already know who struck first. We do know who struck first, so. yes. First things first, though, she needs to get the king, her son, to legally sanction this attack. The one who she literally plotted behind his back? That one? 
So Catherine had one of Charles's friends deliver him the news officially that both his mother and his brother had been complicit in the conspiracy from the start and essentially had organized it. So, um, this not great. Yeah. This um, great. hiking, uh, Hi, uh, stole your mother and your brother tried to assess. I don't know. <laughs> um, they're, they're responsible for this. So we have to figure this shit out. This is going to get real awkward real quickly. <laughs> Once the King had time to absorb the information, Catherine, the Duke of Anjou and the Privy Council all approached Charles in his room and the 21 year old King was distraught, fearful for his life and that of his kingdom. Yeah. Charles had been told by Catherine that Coligny and the other Huguenot leadership were planning to kill Catherine and the king both. Charles was in disbelief. There was no way Coligny would ever harm him. He was like a father to the young king. Uh, but you, Catherine, I understand completely that he would want to harm <laughs> Catherine then laid down all the grievances caused by Coligny and the Huguenot forces throughout the wars of religion that had plagued them all for a decade. But she definitely didn't list out anything the Catholics did <laughs> to perpetuate that problem. Francois de Guise had been assassinated under Coligny's orders. Orties. <laughs> Thousands of people around the country had been murdered. Coligny acted brazenly, levying troops without the king and council's permission to take them into the Netherlands. He did this before the wedding. Whoa. They told him no, and he still... He's like, fuck your no. He still organized a force that was positioned across the border, <sighs> so that did happen. That's quite threatening. And he was pre preparing to drag France into another war it could not win. Coligny was not a loyal servant. He was a cancer that needed to be removed. Yeah. It took some time, but Catherine and her council wore Charles down, and eventually he consented to the coordinated murder of the Huguenot leadership in the city. Increasingly unstable and distraught over the depraved action he was about to sanction, the young king famously cried out, and this is what he's most known for in all of history, kill them all, kill them all. Um... It is likely he had been referring to the names of the Huguenot leaders that had been drafted, but the words would later be attributed to the whole of the events that were about to take place. Oh, God. <sighs> Everyone buckle up. Um, disclaimer alert. It's going to get bad. Yeah. Catherine sent out dispatches around the city to close the city gates with all exits guarded by militiamen. Chains were drawn across the River Seine to oh, prevent God. escape across the river and down it. Parisians were then issued arms to defend themselves in the event of an uprising from the Huguenot faction. Armed guards patrolled the narrow streets of medieval Paris, and they were stationed outside of the various lodgings of the Huguenots. That's and then terrible. on August 24th, 1572, sometime between midnight and dawn, the bells of St. Germain began to ring which signaled the attack. The Duke of Guise and the King's Swiss mercenaries were tasked with hunting down their targets in the city. When Coligny was found, he was dragged out of bed by one of the Swiss mercenaries. He and his, his men and um, his chaplain uh -huh. heard the commotion outside, so he knew at this point what was going to happen. So his chaplain prayed with him, and then he prepared himself. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine? Oh. Witnesses that survived observed that Coligny was unfazed, having already accepted his pending death. Yeah, he, he, you just tried to kill him. Yeah. His last words were allegedly, 
I should at least be killed by a gentleman and not by this boar. The mercenary responded by stabbing him through the chest with his sword and then tossed Coligny's body out the window. He landed next to the Duke of Guise, who kicked him. Mm -hmm. What the fuck? Yes. Henry of Navarre and his cousin, the Prince de Conde, were both found and separated from their Protestant companions and locked away in apartments for their own safety until the king could meet with them. Catherine knew she could not kill them because they are princes of the blood. They would never see their companions again, and even as they were being locked up, the rest of their friends were dragged from their beds to have their throats slit. I just love how, like... This all really happens. I know, but it's like, they're just like, oh, we can't kill the princes of the blood. That's the line you're drawing, asshole? That's the one line you drew? Because they're royalty, and to kill royalty would set a bad precedence against their own. Yeah, killing them... Mm-hmm. I guess hundreds at this point. Oh no. Oh no, she gave me the look, guys. It was thousands. I was right the first time. Screams of terror broke out across the Louvre Palace as visiting Huguenot nobles were butchered in their rooms and down the hallways they tried to escape to. Holy shit. Many they are of them killing all of them? Many of them were still in their bedclothes. Oh my God. Also happening, Margot had not been told about what was going to happen. Catherine sent her back to her rooms with Henry of Navarre because she knew if she didn't send her daughter back there, it would alert the Huguenots to what was going on. Oh my God. You literally sent your daughter into the, like her younger sister started crying and tried to keep Margot from leaving. And Catherine was like, you have to let her go. Oh my gosh. So Margot gets there. She gets to her bed when she starts to hear the murders. And, um, she opens her door to see two of, henry's huguenot like servants Mm -hmm. she ends up saving them she takes them back to where catherine and her family are and she like begs them to keep them alive so she saves them but she was traumatized by the whole thing (laughs) yeah they they never told her oh wow who wouldn't be traumatized as the tendrils of the sun's rays first began to spread across the city of paris the terrible screams that started in the palace began to spread across the city Huguenots of high and low birth were attacked all throughout Paris. Men, women, and children who had come to Paris to partake in the joy and excitement of a royal wedding were dragged out of their beds and onto the streets, where they were stabbed, shot, beaten, and mutilated. Complete and utter anarchy reigned in Paris. Pregnant women and infant children were not exempt from the massacre. I won't tell you what they did. Thank you. And anyone who was caught trying to flee across the River Seine was shot in the back. When word reached the palace of the chaos that had erupted in the city, the royal family had no way of knowing what their plans had unleashed. Bullshit, you had every way of knowing what your plan was going to unleash. In an attempt to rein in the mob that had grown in the city, Charles issued a command for the killings to stop. These orders were completely disregarded, and the massacre that had now come to be known as the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre continued on for three more days and Jesus. spread out into the, into the provinces surrounding the city of Paris. But again, if you set a precedence that we're going to kill everyone in the fucking palace, of course everyone else is going to follow. And then to think that mm-hmm. people who are this incensed that they murder women, children, pregnant women, and little itty bitty babies that have not been born yet, no fucking shit, they're going to ignore you. Yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's hard to say how many people died during the massacre as accounts vary significantly. 
Roman Catholic apologists put the numbers at as little as 2,000. Yeah, because why would you admit how many people actually died? Contemporary Huguenot sources put the number as high as 70,000. Modern day sources put the number somewhere between 10 and 30,000 deaths. Oh my God. We'll never know with any absolute certainty just how many Protestants were murdered that Too day. Too many is my number. What we do know is that a majority of the Huguenot leadership was snuffed out, but the few that did survive would live to tell the tale and ignite the outrage of France and launch her into more civil wars down the road to settle the score. Yeah, how else was this going to play out? As for Catherine de' Medici, her reputation would forever be blackened by this event. Good. It is likely that she did not anticipate her conspiracy to assassinate Coligny would result in such a horrible display of carnage, but she did not discount the possibility of it occurring, as was evidenced by the actions that were taken to close the city down and prevent people from escaping. From here on out, Catherine would forever be regarded as the wicked and evil Italian queen. Niccolo Machiavelli once said, A prince must learn from the fox and the lion. The lion cannot protect himself from traps, and the fox cannot defend himself from wolves. One must therefore be a fox to recognize traps and a lion to frighten the wolves. Catherine had always been the fox. She was now the lion as well. And she would suffer the consequences of it for years to come. And yes, there will be consequences. Because her story is not done. Oh, Jesus Christ. That's not great. We don't like Catherine right now. Sorry. How does Catherine de' Medici I don't part like three. her right now. We're going to leave nope. on a bad note. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, no. I don't know right now. You weren't supposed to. Okay, good. Because I already thought. So, like, we're doing this podcast to tell you about, yes, some badass women from history. But they also make the very... Some of them are, as well. are monsters. Yeah. And I think it's important that we still know their stories. Yeah. So come back for part four. Oh, shit. How are you? Can we watch a happy movie? How like, are we doing? I'm not great. That's terrible. Like, I know terrible shit like this has happened in history. And I know that that's probably like baby stuff compared to like some of the other stuff that has this happened. This was the worst massacre to occur ever in France up to this point and until the French Revolution. Yes. It's upsetting that there's an until. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's not great. All yeah. Because, guys, all because we're literally playing religious duck measuring at this point. So I read about the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre um, in Ken Follett's Column of Fire. It is a book about the wars of religion in Europe. He's the same dude who did Pillars of the Earth in A World Without End. Okay. So... He tells the story primarily from England's point of view, but it 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 mixes and matches with France as well. So you get to learn. You don't actually see Catherine de Medici in it. You, yeah. You see Mary and you see Elizabeth, and it is the only fictional representation of these queens and these events that I've actually seen that are accurate. Wow. And when I learned about the same. Well, yeah, because we're not gonna. We don't. <laughs> Humans don't want to hear about all the awful shit humans have done. Yeah. And and not like really like we'll watch it on TV as like a fictional The Red Wedding, like yeah. and then be totally fine with it. But I mean people weren't fine. People no, were crying when they saw that. <laughs> that but, was yeah. an upsetting episode. But, yeah. So <laughs> the Red Wedding was loosely inspired by the Bartholomew, the St. Bartholomew's Day massacre. And there's also an actual wedding where like um 
I think the the young kings of Scotland died, where oh. they brought them in to murder them. That's terrible. As they were That's dying. absolutely awful. Mm-hmm. Why is it called the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre? Because it occurred on St. Bartholomew's Feast Day. Okay, I kind of figured that was the answer, but... <laughs> oh, no. That's terrible. Yeah, and that event... Um, I won't go into too many details because I know we try to keep things not too political on the podcast, yes. but um, reading about that event really hit me hard. Yeah. And it has really influenced a lot of my own personal religious beliefs. Yeah. But people worship as they will. Yeah. Or not worship. Yeah. Let your business do their own shit. Yeah. It doesn't fucking matter. It shouldn't matter to you. Let's all take a deep breath. Ooh. Yep. And you can say what you what you were going to say as far as like, there shouldn't be a, I, I just, there shouldn't be a, a one religion. That's no official religion in yeah, the United States. That is my shit personal Like belief. this happens. And Cause I you can worship the same God and still fight each other, believe differently. Yeah. And that's why I'm like, no, because then we have to decide how we worship that God. Yeah, and just, it's I a refuse slope and the pit yeah. at the end isn't fun. I want you to worship as you want. And I want people who don't want as to worship. It doesn't hurt anyone yeah. else. You do whatever the fuck you want. <laughs> I would like pagans to live peacefully yeah. and Jews and um, anyone who follows Islam and whatever yeah. your Christian beliefs are. And if you don't believe don't in get, anything. As long as you don't get fanatical and crazy. If and, you're Wiccan, if uh, whatever you yeah. are, worship as you will. Just you can't dictate what other people yeah. do. No. Anyway, that's our That's our soapbox. Box. We're <laughs> off of it now. <laughs> We're never off of yeah. it, let's be honest. Okay, so my sources for today's episode that uh, we're all probably going <laughs> to spend some time recovering from as you should you should think on this and it should stay with you for a minute yeah (laughs) if it doesn't there's a therapist we can recommend (laughs) i mean therapy is good anyway so good for everyone um so the book i've been reading again is catherine de medici renaissance queen by by leone frida and wikipedia and the wikipedes (laughs) the wikipedes (laughs) donate to the wikipedia are they yes. That? Yeah, they are. are. Please okay, donate to Wikipedia. Yeah. I really should do that because I use them all the time. <laughs> um, you can help our podcast out by rating, reviewing, and subscribing wherever you get your podcast services. You can also now review or you rate can you on can for sure Spotify. rate on Spotify now. So that definitely helps us out. And um, oh, you Spotify listeners, we're calling you out. <laughs> and if you'd like to leave a suggestion for us or call me out on my bad French. <laughs> Don't call out on her French because I'm going to have to yell at you. <laughs> you can reach us at difficult.jam. Jamsels. Jamsels. Oh my God. I'm changing the email right now. <laughs> difficult.damsels at gmail.com. I don't know why I'm struggling. It's fine. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Difficult Damsels, the podcast. And yeah, I would say stay oh, difficult. I forgot to but... put the last episode up. Oh, really? Shoot. You didn't do it now, today. <laughs> why am I so bad at this? <laughs> Because life is hard. I don't have any time to do anything at work. We need like a professional, like, I don't know, what's it called? I just need you to remind me. Like, I'll try to remind night, you. At night, though. Okay. like, Because <laughs> I can't do anything at work anymore. Um, I would say stay <laughs> difficult, but maybe not quite like this episode. No, don't. This is not difficult. This don't is Don't do this. Um, but <laughs> You can still stay difficult, but don't hurt anyone in your, yeah. in your venture to stay difficult. <laughs> you still have to be a good person and be difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Moral guidelines. Stay okay, thanks. Bye. <laughs> Stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. Perfect. <laughs>